06. I'll just read you a few thoughts here. The San Francisco earthquake of 1906 was a major earthquake that struck San Francisco, the coast of Northern California, at 5.12 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18, 1906. Devastating fires broke out in the city and lasted for several days. As a result of the quake and fires, about 3,000 people died. And over 80% of San Francisco was destroyed. Now, driving through San Francisco, it's a sprawling city. I mean, just driving through hill after hill after hill of house upon house, upon, you know, a little row house back to back to back. So it was a sprawling population then as well that was destroyed, 80% of it. The earthquake and resulting fire are remembered as one of the worst natural disasters in the history of the United States alongside the Galveston Hurricane of 1900 and Hurricane Katrina in 2005. It's good to be famous for something, isn't it? The death toll from the earthquake and resulting fire is the greatest loss of life from a natural disaster in California's history. Nearby cities such as Santa Rosa, San Jose also suffered severe damage. In Monterey County, the earthquake permanently shifted the course of the Salinas River near its mouth. Where previously the river emptied into the Monterey Bay between Moss Landing and Watsonville, it was diverted six miles south to a new outlet just over or near Marina. We drove over that, that river, so to think of a, of a river re relocating over this incredible distance was a redefining moment. This, the landscape was redefined in some ways through this earthquake. Between 227,000 and 300,000 people were left homeless out of a population of about 410,000. Half the people were evacuated and they fled across the bay to Oakland and Berkeley. Now, I actually have some footage of this flee that took place here. Let's see if we can catch a quick uh, glimpse of people fleeing. Well, that's the earthquake, but that's not fleeing. That's just the earthquake. Where's my fleeing footage? Here we go. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my wife fleeing. From 150 feet up in the air, in the redwood forest, we just got a wild hair and decided, let's, no, let's go ziplining in the redwoods. So watch this. Here's fleeing. Look how calm she is. You'd never know that if you look down, she's 150 feet up in the air. She's about to go for a ride. she goes. Well, I did see her again later that day <laughs> on the other side of the canyon there. Uh, I just wanted to give you a quick little shot of some of the things that we did in Northern California. Those were impressive, impressive trees. And, and I have to admit, we bumped, we bumped into a couple that told us about this zipline experience that we had. So we thought, oh, well, we got to do that. And standing on the edge of this platform, holding on to this thing and about to jump off and glide 150 feet up in the air, immediately my first thought was, why did I do this? <laughs> but there's some illustrations of faith that I'll be using about that sometime in the future as well. Faith coupled with stupidity. All right, back to San Francisco and their earthquake. Newspapers at the time described the Golden Gate Park, Presidio, the Panhandle, and the beaches between uh, Ingleside and Northern Beach as being converted to makeshift uh, temporary housing. For two years, there were tents that people lived in. And we have a sense of this. We had FEMA trailers. But 1906, you got no FEMA trailers. You're just living on the beaches. You're living in open spaces. You're living in tents. And, you know, at that time, San Francisco was, I think it was the ninth largest city in the country. It was the largest, by far, city in the West. And it was the gateway to the Pacific. Uh, the economy in, in the West was dependent upon and linked to San Francisco when this earthquake redefined things. The article says the disaster diverted trade, industry, and population growth south to Los Angeles, which during the 20th century became the largest and most important urban area in the West. Many of the city's leading poets and writers retreated to Carmel by the sea. Now, we actually spent four nights in Carmel, so I, I actually studied a little bit about how did this little town come to be? And it, it is an it is a, an incredible little town there. It's just full of character 
and you, when you realize it was writers and artists and creative people who all settled there after the great earthquake, you realize why this town has such creative flair to it. Everywhere that you walked around was just a scenery to behold things. But what happened in Northern California in 1906, it actually began people studying and getting a better understanding about the epicenter of earthquakes. Very little was known about the San Andreas Fault. We all know that famous fault line back then. They had, they had some understanding of it, but didn't quite realize it ran all the way down to Los Angeles where all the, the settling and the relocating of the economy went to Los Angeles, and the San Andreas Fault runs down there as well. But this began, this earthquake began about two miles offshore under about 100 feet of water in a remote, unseen location, this this pressure built up along this fault line. And when the pressure exerted itself, movement occurred. And thus, you find yourself at the epicenter of an earthquake. And that shifting reverberated out to where the vibration, the impact of that was felt as far north as Oregon, all the way down to Los Angeles, and inland as far as Nevada. So this was a major, major move that took place. So here's my quick summary of this earthquake. One Wednesday morning in 1906, right, amidst life as usual, an unseen force began to exert pressure in a remote location. The result would devastate lives, rewrite history, and change the world map as we know it. Unseen pressure plus movement equaled world alteration. Now, if you are in Acts chapter 13, and if you're not, turn there with me this morning, because that, that epicenter description is in this passage this morning. Peter warned me I would not be able to leave the first part of Acts chapter 13 alone. I tried to give it away, gave it to the other guys, and he was right. I can't leave it alone, so I do have to go back and revisit this moment here in Acts chapter 13 where a, a small unseen meeting is taking place in a church, certainly by no means some world-renowned megachurch at this point in Antioch, is having a small unseen meeting. And a pressure is going to be exerted upon the men who are in that meeting. And those men are going to move, and the reverberation from that meeting is going to rock the world. And it's going to be felt as far away as, well, New Orleans, Louisiana. The epicenter for the lives that have been changed here. Watching Pam Zerang's story. The epicenter for Pam Zerang being able to tell her story about encountering the risen Christ came from this meeting in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Let's, let's read this together. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them Father, thank you for this revelation, this insight, pulling back the veil on a meeting that took place about 46 A.D. in a church in a town called Antioch. Lord, in an amazing way, we have felt the impact of what took place in this meeting. What you began by the Spirit has reverberated out across the land, across the ages, and it has found us. And Lord, for that, we are eternally grateful. Lord, help us as we stare into this passage with a fresh understanding of who you are and how you work in our lives. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you get to Acts 13, and then Peter and Jason did just an outstanding job of bringing us into this passage, uh, the word missionary begins to, to sort of find its way into everything that's being written here. All the commentaries, all the headings probably in your Bible, missionary journeys, right? The gospel now is it's going missional, if you will. Now, it's already been missional because it's already traveled about 300 miles from Jerusalem north to Antioch. But now it's going to go missional all over the place. And it's, it's primarily going to head west, but it's going to begin to touch town after town after town after town. This is, this is us getting a chance to see the gospel taking its first few steps beyond this local church here in Antioch. And it's very informing for us to understand how the gospel wants to travel. Right? It wants to accomplish something. It wants to not sit in one spot. It wants to not sit in any one life. It, it's compelling. It wants to move. It wants to travel. And it's going to travel and find us. And, and if you and I could do one of those travel back when those, what do they call those, uh, ancestry.com kind of things, and you could go back and find the moment where the gospel began to come to you, I think you'd find your way back to this meeting, to a group of men, five guys gathered, not considering, wow, guys, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight, and, and, and the decisions made here could touch people thousands of miles away. I think they were just gathering like normal Christians gathering around God and having fellowship with one another and praying and seeking the Lord together. And God was moving. And these men's lives would be affected. And then our lives would eventually be affected. Have you ever thought about the fact that your life was touched by this meeting? The gospel is going to travel from this meeting some 6,800 miles to find its way to New Orleans going to cross two continents, an ocean, it's going to be translated into multiple languages before it gets to us, it's going to take 1,933 years before it finds me, but it's, it's going to persist and it's never going to stop. And what's amazing is we heard, you know, the story about Sergius Paulus and his conversion. What you hear in Acts of the gospel in Acts chapter 13 when the gospel travels all the way around the world and it finds you and me, it is still saying exactly the same thing. That's unique. It doesn't change. It doesn't get augmented. It travels across all kinds of cultures and societies, ideas, technology. But when it gets to the doorstep of my life and your life, it still says exactly the same thing that is said in Acts chapter 13. Sergius Paulus heard the same thing as you and I hear today from this saving gospel. Listen, you're here today, Jason mentioned a little bit earlier that, that, that maybe you're not quite sure you're in a place where you're right with God, you're considering some things, obviously you are, you wouldn't be here this morning. This, this is a unique thing that God has done. God has preserved a, God, a message, a gospel message that 1900 plus years later is still saying the exact same thing and it's still having the exact same impact upon people's lives. Well, we go back to this epicenter because I'm very curious about what got this thing started. Well, you see, the first thing that happened was the Holy Spirit said. Right? So before these men do anything, the Holy Spirit is already on the move. And I think that's critically important to make sure you get the order of that right. And Jason touched on some of that in his message. The Holy Spirit gathers these men. The Holy Spirit provides a pressure right underneath the ground where no one can see. These, these men are like tectonic plates and the Holy Spirit is beginning to exert pressure upon their lives. Now, what's going to happen with them is they are going to move. So you get the Holy Spirit who is sovereignly deciding at this point the gospel now travels outside of Antioch and it moves. He has decided that and he has put pressure on men and then men are going to move. Now, I want to accentuate both of these. There are responding men in this church. There, there is a church in Antioch. Right? You, you and I owe our existence in some degree to a church in Antioch. A church who had raised up leaders. A church who was caring for one another. They were doing church together. And they were experiencing the life of God together. It was the common normalcy 
of a people dwelling together in a church called Antioch where the Holy Spirit dwelled to be able to have this kind of movement take place through lives. So in some, in some way, the Church of Lakeview Christian Center and the salvations that have come to us as individuals, we trace the epicenter back to a little meeting in a church that existed in Antioch. Listen, can, can you get this in our heads? For us to be speaking some 1,900 plus years after these folks met in this church in Antioch and still being effective, aren't you grateful that there were some people who knew how to do church? in a little town called Antioch. And listen, I don't want to oversell us here. I know we're just Lakeview, and I can't find us on the pages of Scripture by name. But 1,900 years from now, if the Lord should tarry, is there anything about what we're doing that might still have an impact? Hey, God's still doing earthquakes. God's still shaking things. And when God moves, people move. Now, listen, I want to make sure we you know, kind of see both of those things because theologically there's a tendency to lose one or the other. Uh, we, we are a God-centered church. We preach and teach from a God-centered standpoint, which means we don't elevate man to be the mover and shaker. God, man is not the determinative force in the universe. If so, you might as well just close this Bible and stick a big question mark on its cover. Because if man is determinative, is what, if what you and I do is determinative about the future, if our faithfulness is determinative about the future, well then, how certain are you that you are really going to be faithful in the future? I mean, do you want to pull out your resume real quick and see how well you've done in the past? My future's got a big question mark if I'm the key mover and shaker. But what I find in the scripture is that God is the mover and shaker. God's the determinative force. God's the one who gives me a sense of expectation and hope for the future because God is going to move and do. But yet, these men are going to respond to God moving. And I, and I, cannot, I cannot develop a theology that is God-centered and man-eliminating. So we can just eliminate man from the equation. God moves and it doesn't matter what men do. I, I, I can't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. So when God moves... Men move. Right? So in this little town called Antioch, and, and let me just give you a quick little intro to this town of Antioch, because I found them curious. I find Antioch like New Orleans. Here's a Bible dictionary definition. of here, Here's who Antioch was. It was luxurious. Its main street, four miles in length, was lined with magnificent mansions. It was highly cultured, but its social life was debased, sensual, and shocking. Jews, right, religious, good Jewish religious people formed a large portion of the population. It became the third city in the Roman Empire, having a population of 500,000. Does that sound like any city you've ever been in? Does it sound like New Orleans? kind of does, doesn't it? And here's what's interesting and why I think this matters. There, there sometimes can be this disconnect. We have this, you know, we're Americans. We've got all this technology. We've got all the, the publication of sin all around us, the debauchery of our culture and our society. We can almost start feeling like we live in a day that nobody else has lived in. We're trying to be the church today in a way that these, these folks in Antioch, they didn't have to deal with all the stuff we're dealing with. Uh, I'm not sure that's true. They probably had some things that we don't have, and we may have a few things they didn't either. But they had stuff calling out to them, distracting them, tempting them, wanting to climb up the priority list for them, just like we do. We're not unique in that category. If they were going to be a church, which meant they were, they were set in darkness as a source of light, they were going to have to battle with the darkness element that they were amongst. Listen, we're not isolationists as a church. If, if your theology is, listen, Let's just see if we can just dwell amongst the light. Well, then, then you've misplaced part of the calling of the church. We are light in the midst of darkness. So the church has always got to figure out how to walk out holiness and live this call in the midst of competing agendas. And their competing agendas was luxury. It's a luxuriant city. So if you walk down the four-mile stretch of mansions and compared it with the thing you were living in, you were tempted, you were wondering... How did these people get that much money? 
How on earth do they afford to live here? Oh, I wish I had that chariot parked in my driveway. Right? They, they were looking at stuff that was attractive and alluring to them. It was a city full of culture. So you guys who are, you're in the music, and you know, music's got edges to it. And some of it's okay, and some of it's not okay. And, but you just love the, the artistry of music, and you're drawn to it, and you're trying to make a decision about what do I listen to, what do I don't listen to. Listen, that's not new. These guys had all those issues in their midst. There was a social life. There was social activity. There was some form of social media. I don't know. They carved on a tree, and somebody walked past and looked, and you, know, you post your picture if you're a good drawer. Hey, wow, look, he posted a picture. That wouldn't have happened back then either, by the way. But they had stuff to deal with in order to still figure out how to be the church. It's a, it's a challenge today, isn't it? To manage your money. There's so much stuff we could buy. There's so much stuff to have. Manage your time. There's so much to do. Oh, I just didn't get to that this week, and I didn't get to that this week. And, and I know we're modern and we're technological, but these guys had issues too. Most of us here come from some kind of a religious background. If we grew up in New Orleans, uh, we grew up with family traditions and family religion. But so did they. The Jews in this day, they were around all that. They came into the church, and there were some moments in which the church did this, and that would have crosshaired. And if your dad knew that you were attending a church that did stuff, they had to face all those things. And yet they were still called to be the church. And 1,900 plus years later, aren't we grateful that they figured out how to be the church and not get absorbed in the culture to where they were not players for all of eternity? This church made a dent in our lives, and we're grateful for that. But God is moving here in Acts 13, and he's going missional. So here's what I want us to do. When God is moving, question how to participate in a God quake. How do we do that? God's about to shake stuff. How do we participate? Three points I just want to draw out of these passages. One, make the ministry of the Spirit central, not peripheral. Now, when we look into this passage, look in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Right, when we identify Barnabas and Saul, we're going to put a tracking device on them, and they're coming our way. But you understand, Barnabas and Saul aren't going anywhere, and they don't even know to go anywhere, and they don't understand how to go until the Holy Spirit says to them, until a revelation takes place, until in a real time and space moment where a bunch of men, five guys are gathered together, probably looking something like what we experience when we gather together, they're in a room together. Maybe they're walking around. Maybe they're holding hands. Maybe they're on their knees. Maybe somebody's playing an instrument. They're worshiping God. They're just, they're just sensitive to God. They're available to God. Listen, don't take that for granted. If I, just, if, I, if I quizzed you and you stood in a moment right now and you said, when was the last time I was just an antenna for the Holy Spirit? I was just available. I, I wasn't just, you know slamming on the brakes, screeching to a halt for just a second where I could throw up a quick prayer request for God to cover me as I went and did my next thing. And then the next time I have a prayer moment, it looks like that again. And the next time it looks like that again. But when, we, when were we just absorbed and just on the receiving end? Lord, we're just, we're just here to receive. We're just here to enjoy your presence. Just here to be affected by the things that are in your heart and the way that you are. Is in that moment that the Holy Spirit reveals life to them. It's very, very important. This, this, I'm going to say some things to us today that I've said before, and, and join me in that I'm, I'm a little slow to learn, right? Because these are things that I struggle and wrestle with, that I don't get so busy with so much activity, good activity, that I, I don't know what the voice, the subjective voice of the Spirit sounds like. I know a lot about what the objective voice says, teach from it. I don't know what the subjective voice says. Now, here's a couple of important thoughts from some of our friendly theologians. Arthur Pink says, Not at all too strong was the language of Samuel Chadwick when he said, The gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It was for this 
all the rest was. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, all the rest would be useless. This is some big talk from a pretty big theologian. The great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit, the essential, vital, central element of the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. Theologically, that's, that's a mouthful. You talk about important elements that we find in Scripture that, that are taught to us. That's a mouthful. But practically speaking, it's vitally important. That you and I just don't have some shelf life thoughts about the Holy Spirit, but that we've got a living reality taking place in our lives in exchange with the Spirit. That the Spirit can say to us, set apart, do this, go there. That He speaks to us that way. Otherwise, we've got trophy doctrines sitting on a shelf that can't get mobilized into the world. Because it's the Spirit who says, take that down off the shelf and use it. Matter of fact, take it down off the shelf and I'll explain it to you. Right? Some of us, this is just true. Some of us have this volume of books, you know, from the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the atonement of Christ. We've got these volumes up there that, that, that we don't understand the value of. They're just sitting up on the shelf. They become valuable to us when they become revealed to us. And who is it that reveals them to us? It's the Spirit. So listen, you, you, can, you can prioritize doctrine because I know theologically I argue with some of these thoughts and I put them out there intentionally for we'd have to force ourselves to argue with, hey, do I kind of agree with this guy? He's elevating something here. Do I agree with that? Well, if you misplace the, the active engagement of the Spirit then you and I don't even know how valuable the stuff on the shelf is. You can talk to me all you want about the atonement. But if the atonement doesn't launch you to the ends of the earth, it's because you haven't seen it. Well, but I have it on my shelf. It says atonement right up there. You still haven't seen it. Because if you could see it, you wouldn't be sitting there doing what you're doing with that sitting on the shelf right there. You'd be mobilized. You'd be sent. You'd be launched. C.J. Mahaney says, Is the communion of the Spirit as much reality to you as the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ. Actually, perhaps the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ isn't as real to you because you don't know and haven't pursued communion with the Holy Spirit. Right? That revelatory, impacting work. George Smeaton was a serious theologian in his day. His his greatest writings were on the atonement. I think it's why you're going to see him set this against the backdrop of the atonement. And he makes this statement. Wherever Christianity has been a living power, that's what I want it to be in my life, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has uniformly been regarded equally with the atonement and justification by faith. Now, if you don't understand, George Smeaton is the specialist in those two categories. George Smeaton has written volumes on those two doctrines. George Smeaton was highly respected for his communication of those truths about the atonement and justification. And he's the one who turns around and says, hey, do not lose regard for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says where it's been regarded equally with... He says, as the article of a standing or falling church, the distinctive feature of Christianity as it's addressed itself to a man's experience is the work of the Spirit. By maintaining silence on this doctrine, one of the grand provisions of the gospel for meeting the wants of mankind is omitted. Right, here's, a, here's a functional reality. We come to Acts chapter 13. They don't have the Bible written down yet, but at least they can repeat what's been said. And Jesus has already said, he's made clear, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Right? So in Acts 13, when this meeting comes together, that revelation is already given. They already know that. So that's quite often when you and I pull up into a prayer moment together with others or on our own, 
this is already spoken to us. So here we've got boundaries here. We've got, we've got a general direction. Nobody should be coming into a meeting going, hey, God doesn't want us to take the gospel everywhere. Let's pray about that. Let's, let's pray how God wants us just to keep this to ourselves. They don't ever need to pray about that. Because the Bible's already opened up the revelation that says, go. You, you are always on your toes as a Christian. You are always seeking, where do we go? But what the Bible doesn't say is who should go and where should they go. And when should they go? You're going to have to get that by the Spirit. There's nothing in this Bible that says Saul and Barnabas, of all of them, are the two. And yet, the earthquake that you and I have experienced was because Saul and Barnabas were chosen by the Spirit and sent. And God used them and performed his works through their lives. So it's, it's important that we don't misplace. The Spirit has to direct our lives. He wants to commune with us, and he wants to speak to us, and he wants to reveal to us, and that's how God is moving today. One last thought, Mr. Gordon Fee says, Pauline churches were charismatic in the sense that a dynamic presence of the Spirit was manifested in their gatherings, Right? When you come into a meeting, you're in a small group setting, you're praying with others, do you have an expectation that there is a dynamic presence of the Spirit in the room with you? A real personality of the Spirit is present to speak, to use your name, to identify your life, to define a course into the future, to be specific about life at various moments. That's an expectation. This dynamic Evidently, evidential dimensions of life in the Spirit probably more than anything else separates believers in later church history from those in Paul's churches. Whatever else, the Spirit was experienced in Paul's churches. It was not simply part of a phrase in the creed. These folks at the epicenter in Antioch experienced the Spirit They didn't just come together with a general knowledge that there is a Holy Spirit. We come together and pray. They experienced the Spirit. He spoke and directed. And they felt the impact. And they were moved by him to do what they did. So if I'm going to participate in the God quake of what God's doing, I cannot move the Holy Spirit to the periphery. He's got to be central. And I have to be walking with him in a way that makes that exchange real. Second, participating in a God quake means I have to accept God's economy that when God moves, men move. That's just a fact. Like, like tectonic plates, then the pressure builds up for reasons that no one really understands. And suddenly there is this shift. Well, the earthquake happens not just because there's pressure, because quite honestly, there can be pressure and no earthquake. Right, that's true right now in California. But when the pressure builds up and movement occurs, now you have an earthquake on your hands. And when you look throughout the history of Scripture, when God moves, men move. Matter of fact, when God's going to move, God taps somebody to have them move. I didn't just decide, hey, I'm folding my hands. You guys are hard to work with anyway. You don't do exactly what I say. You disobey me half the time. You lack faith. It'd just be better if I just go ahead and take this in my own hands and pull it off myself. In spite of what God has to work with, when God moves, he reaches and taps somebody and says, you, you're going to move and I'm going to do. All right. And look here in Acts chapter 13. Well, eventually we'll get to these verses, but I just find this curious. This is just observation as we're reading. Go a little bit farther into the chapter, verse 17. Paul is about to preach to another little town called Antioch in Pisidia. It's not the same town. But when he goes to preach, I want to just, I want to just feature, listen for where God moves a man. You can just listen for that. I mean, a bunch of things are going to be said here. Just listen for that. Verse 17, Paul preaches, says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, right? So immediately God's touching people, right? He doesn't even get one sentence into this. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges, right? People. God moved people until Samuel, the prophet, people. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. God taps Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. God raised up David. God moved David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. So what Paul is going to do here as we get into this verses later, Paul is going to extend the gospel back into Abraham and say, God has been extending the gospel. What came to us was the gospel that God, that Abraham believed and preached. So if you go all the way back to Abraham and you say, God has been moving the gospel. We can say God's been moving the gospel since Eden, since the fall in the garden. But we pick it up in this preaching as God is moving the gospel by tapping a man named Abraham. A man who's not even a believer who lives in the land of Ur the Chaldees. And God begins his move of the gospel by taking this man and saying, you will be a family to me and I will bless you. And I'm going to move through you. And Abraham begins to move and the earthquake sets out from his life. And his people end up in captivity in Egypt, and God's going to move to set them free. What's the first thing God does when he goes to move to set them free? He taps a man named Moses who's in the wilderness tending sheep. And God moves that man, and then that man moves, and these folks are set free. And they come into the land, and God's going to protect them and guide them. So God taps judges and moves them, and he awakens Samuel, the prophet, to be a voice in a time of great lethargy and and difficulty amongst God's people. God moves a man named Samuel. Samuel moves, and the earthquake continues. And God raises up Saul, and God raises up David. And David was a man who served God, the scriptures say here, in his generation. God moved, pressure put on David. David moved, and the vibration Set out. And you just see that over and over and over again. John the Baptist was moved by God. And when he moved, he prepared the way for the Savior to come. He had a role to play that God awakened in his heart. And he moved and God moved. And when we get into the New Testament, God is still wanting to move. And God's means of moving the gospel was to meet with a group of five men in Antioch and tell them, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. I'm about to move. And the gospel goes into the world. All right, so listen, can you get an economy in our minds here? We, we, we can't develop, my boys are into sports, so they're always bringing me sports information. There's this one source of sports information called the Bleacher Report. Y'all heard of this? Sports guys? All right, well, the church can't afford to be a bunch of people given the Bleacher Report. You know what I'm talking about? People sitting up in the bleachers just thinking stuff happens. Stuff just happens. It just happens. Let's just sit up in the bleacher and talk about it happening. Things happen in the church. Um, No. They don't just happen. Even understanding the sovereign purpose of God, you cannot walk away after reading the Bible just looking at these passages and saying, stuff just happens. It just happens. God is sovereign. He just does it. And there's no involvement from men, really. You read that in the Bible. I'm curious. Can you help me find it? There's no bleacher report. That There's no group of Christians sitting up in the stands with front row seats or, or nosebleed seats with binoculars watching stuff happen in the kingdom of God. If everybody wants to sit in the bleachers, nothing's happening. It takes an Abraham responding. 
It takes a Moses responding. Listen, Moses got to get talked into this deal, right? You remember Moses? Moses didn't. Uh, no, I'm the, I'm the wrong guy. God, I'm going to argue with you on this one. Nope, not, not right. Hey, listen, even if you end up arguing with God, at the end of the day, they'll get moving. Move and vibrate out and send the power of God into wherever it needs to go. And God will send it and do the work of destruction that it needs to do. There's, there's no bleachers for Christians. Right? I, mean, I love the fact that we can stand up here and we have baptism testimonies and folks that stand up and they talk about uh, getting saved at the Alpha or whether it's Pam or whoever story it is. But, but every one of those people, I've never heard anybody stand up and, and share their testimony and say, you know what, um, I came to know the Lord and they never mention a human being being involved. Have you ever heard a testimony like that? No one shared anything with them. No one told them their testimony. No one explained the scriptures to them. No one invited them to something. No one hung a door hanger on their door. It just happened. (laughs) This guy just happened. Let's just all pull up chairs and just watch God do. But somewhere, that's theologically the framework that some of us are working out of. That God's just going to do. Let's just watch God do. I just want to be a part of the church where we just watch God do. It's an awesome church. That, that, That church doesn't exist. When God moves in Antioch, he taps five men and they get a burden and they get affected and then they move. And then two of them get sent. Risky, courageous move on their part to go somewhere else and do something. Listen, you've got to have this economy. You want to be a part of a God quake. You've got to know when God moves, men move. You move. Every one of us move when God moves. Right, now, this is, this is true then. It's true now. Right, we can see the urgency then. The gospel's just now, just now taking off from Antioch. And when God wants to move the gospel, he moves men to move the gospel. It's still true today. It's true in this church today. God wants to affect people evangelistically. God wants to strengthen people's faith in the household of God. God wants to care for the people that are bruised and broken and hurting. God wants there to be a a place of healing that somebody could have walked in here this morning, ostracized from the world, lonely, disaffected, not sure about how to proceed in life, and find in here healing. Because God moves somebody to go and touch their world. That's why we do small groups. That's why we'll ramp up for small groups here in the next few weeks. Because God moves people when he moves. And that's got to be in our economy, in your households, right? The fathers that are here, that, that we, we want to see God do something in our homes. Listen, don't, don't, don't be a dad with a bleacher report that's trying to sit down and, and watch God and tell the story about something that God did that you had nothing, there was no involvement from you. If you have a burden to see God move, God may begin his movement with you. He may be begin by tapping you. Now, if you're going to get tapped by God, you're going to have to maybe do what these five did in Antioch. You have to get around God. You're going to have to listen and be available and receive burden from him. You're going to perhaps have to take some courageous steps into some categories. You may have to change some things. If God speaks to you, how many of us know that it might require faith that makes the whole thing feel really, really awkward? It doesn't feel natural. doesn't feel easy. doesn't feel like something I've got experience with. I mean, isn't that, isn't that probably how Barnabas and Paul are feeling here? You're, you're sending us out from the church here, and we're going to go to places where we, we've not been before, and we don't know what kind of receptivity we're going to have. But it took faith to change. Listen, when God builds up pressure... You know, these tectonic plates have been sitting in one place and God puts pressure. I got to, you know, the first moment of movement's got to feel pretty awkward, risky, and challenging. Don't, don't, don't let that be out of bounds. But if you're a father and God's wanting to do something in your home, get around God in such a way that he can, he can give you the courage to step and do something you'd never do on your own. Right? If you're a husband or a wife and you're, you're struggling and wrestling and, and fighting to stay in your marriage. To not quit on it. Tempted to, to just dodge any more years of disappointment and heartache. 
threatened by the fact that this has been a difficult setting for me. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. This is weighing heavily upon me. I don't know if I can take another step. The God quake that God might want to bring to your marriage, husband or wife, the other one's given up. And yet God is putting pressure by the Spirit on you to move and do something brave and courageous. Do you guys remember I was going to read you the story here? Maybe you just make a footnote. Go back and read this. Esther chapter 4. The king over the land has decreed that all the Jews are basically going to be annihilated. This law has gone out into the land. So in the natural, it looks horrible. But in the spirit, a man named Mordecai is, is experiencing the pressure of the spirit, and he's about to move. He doesn't just experience the pressure. He's about to move. And so he gets under the burden of, of seeing God's people get protected, right? I'm going to put this into a marriage context. Right? God, God wants your marriage to be protected. You may need to be a Mordecai who sees the destruction coming upon your marriage, and God may have to awaken and move your heart to be like a Mordecai and, and to refuse to accept that outcome. And he's moved, and he stands. He, he goes as far as the king's gate, because you can't go any farther than that and be spared of your life. And he's, he's put on sackcloth and ashes, standing in the town square, crying out, lamenting, making a big show and a big deal. Queen Esther, married to the king, but strange marriage right back then. She barely ever sees the king. She has to be welcomed to the king, certainly just like a stranger would be. She can't just barge into the king's presence. She hears about Mordecai. She sends some clothes for him, basically saying, hey, Mordecai, put some clothes on, man. What's wrong with you? Mordecai sends word back to her, says, Esther, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. We've got to do something. Esther, you've got to do something. Now, Esther does what all of us do, do in this moment. Esther begins to list the reasons why nothing can be done. She says, you know, hey, Mordecai, you don't get it. I, even though I'm the queen, I can't just show up before the king and make my case. He, he kills people who do that, Mordecai. So that just can't happen. All right, so whatever your little cool idea was about solving this thing, forget about it. It can't go that way. Mordecai does what men moved by God do. Mordecai argues with what looks impossible. And he begins to argue with Esther. And you know the argument he uses with Esther? He basically says, Esther, it matters whether you do this or not. That's the argument he used. Now, I don't know where Mordecai was in his sovereign theology, but he actually does include an element of sovereignty here. He says, you know, Esther, if, if you don't do this, deliverance from God will come from somewhere else. But I just want you to know there will be consequences. Don't you think that you and your household will be spared? If you decide that you're not going to act right now, you and your household will suffer consequences. Now, I'm sure God will accomplish his big picture in the end, but you will be affected. And who knows, Esther, this is the only verse most of us know from Esther, whether or not you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, what you do matters, all right? Can you get this picture here? Here's this situation that God wants to break out and do something to protect his own people here. Not advance, but protect them. And God begins by burdening a man named Mordecai, puts pressure on him, and he begins to move. He moves Esther, and then God moves Esther, and Esther takes action, and guess what? God moves, and all of his people are spared. Listen, whether the gospel is going forth from Antioch or you're just protecting your marriage from being destroyed, this is how God moves. God pressures a man, the man moves, and God moves. So please don't decide you're going to sit in the bleachers, husband or wife, and just watch your marriage fall to pieces and act as though, you know, hey, if God wants to do something, then let God do something. Okay. When God decides he wants to do something, you're going to find yourself standing in the town square wearing a bunch of itchy clothes and screaming and crying out to God so that Esther can move and that God can move. Right? That's how God does things. I'm just pulling this off the pages of the Bible. We can't develop a bleacher report mentality. Last thing. You want to see a God quake, then position 
and task leaders to lead. Position leaders to lead and task them to lead. Right? All these examples that we just went through throughout Scripture. God moves and somebody is going to lead the movement. God has an economy of raising up individuals that he is going to now use to advance his cause. Right? This, is, this is a way that God does stuff. So when we get to Antioch and God goes to move, God's economy is to gather these five individuals and to deal with them and from them to launch two who will lead the missionary expedition. So God is going to tap into leaders. And I would just help us for a moment to appreciate, appreciate a little bit of the awkwardness of that as well as appreciate that this is how God operates and we want to be able to receive it, right? One, calling and specific assignments are biblical realities. Now, let's not, let's not get weird about that. It's just in the Bible. Right? I mean, here, here's the weird part. In Antioch, you have a church that exists. You got believers in Antioch, lots of them, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands if it grew like Jerusalem. So you've got a bunch of believers there, but you've only got five prophets and teachers. Now, maybe you've got 25. I don't know, but only five are mentioned here. So in God's plan, amongst all the people who are all believers and who all have received the Holy Spirit, there's, there's only five, though, who are identified as, as prophets and teachers in the midst. Five out of hundreds? Does that seem right? And then out of the five, only two are going to be set apart by the Holy Spirit to this work. Now, I don't know. What do the other three do? Pout? Get mad? Kick dust? Slam the door on the way out of the meeting? I mean, I'm, this is kind of where we live, isn't it? I'm not being treated like that guy's being treated. How come I don't get a special title like him? But there's something in us that doesn't like this. And so, therefore, we kind of clog up the system. This is how God operates. This is God's idea. That he set aside leaders. He gave them a role and a task and abilities by the Spirit. And they, they needed to be given that responsibility and looked to to do exactly what they did. In this moment, a huge decision is being made here. Pretty important that leadership is well understood. All right, second, observing others being called and used by God is supposed to be something that we can participate in and receive from. Right, so what, what's happening in the church in Antioch? Well, there's a few guys who the Holy Spirit is tasking and leading, and they're going to turn around and give that leadership to the church. And the whole church is supposed to be able to participate with these guys and send these two, take responsibility to send these two out. I mean, there was financial need. There was prayer need. They're going to come back and give an account to the church. So God raises up leaders, and he expects others to be able to both participate and support the decision that is made. But then in, in Cyprus and Iconium and Lystra, they're supposed to receive these gifts of leadership as well. So, you know, part of what clogs up the church today is this is American democratic element that's inside of us because we've been raised in a society that, that teaches fairness means everybody does exactly the same thing and has exactly the same opportunity. And so, you know, the second anybody begins to stick out with some kind of distinctive about them, like these five would have, or the two, and we want to kind of call them down. Well, you know, who, well, who do they think they are? How come, how come there was just five guys in that meeting anyway? And who, who chose those five? And why did those five get to be a part of this big decision and everybody else did? I mean, did they have a, did they have a business meeting? After these five got together and discussed what they were going to do, you know how much money they were about to spend? Right? I mean, we just there's something in us that doesn't like this sort of an element, yet it is in the scriptures. We like the idea, well, you know, everybody's a leader. Everyone's a leader. That sounds cool, doesn't it? I've heard people kind of preach that. It just sounds cool. Everybody's a leader, you know, and you don't even qualify because I would qualify, you know, and everybody in some way is a pastor, but you just, just blow that off. Everyone's a pastor. Everyone's a pastor. Well, you know, I don't find that in this passage. I find five guys who were prophets and teachers. 
And they were identified as that because God had identified them as that. God had raised them up. Yeah, but, yeah, but what, what about when those five guys screw stuff up? Huh? What about when they, you know, you give guys a little bit of power and it goes to their head and they get weird and they abuse it. I mean, I was in a church one time where the pastor did blah, 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 blah. And right, that's reality, right? I mean, can anybody think of any position of authority that somebody hasn't abused? Can anybody think of anyone? Every position of authority gets abused. You live in a fallen world. So the moment you come into this world, the moment the, the authority of a father and a mother gets abused, it gets screwed up, doesn't get done right. The authority of governments, uh, abuse. People are stealing money and doing the wrong thing. Pastors, uh, abuse. Yeah, but I don't find anywhere in Scripture where the Bible says, hey, you know what? If we put people in positions of authority, they just, they abuse the thing. So why don't we just tear down all the positions of authority? Let's just do away with all of them. Husbands, you're not the head of your households anymore because God knows how you guys have screwed that up. Fathers, forget it. Let the kids run things. Everybody gets an equal vote. Bring the four-year-old in here. Let's decide what we're having for dinner. Who do you think you are, Mom? You know, the Bible never sounds that way. The Bible turns around and says in a fallen world, God has still appointed people to lead. And in this moment, I can tell you right now, I'm standing in a church called Lakeview Christian Center, and I'm the recipient of the gift of salvation through the gospel because five men came together in a meeting, were affected by the Holy Spirit, and they moved when God moved, and the gospel went west from Antioch and landed in America. And found you and me in New Orleans, Louisiana. Have you ever thought how significant this little meeting was? Eric, go ahead and come up, buddy. We're about to run out of time here this morning. Let me just give you a quick preview. Hope we can share more about this next week. There's an opportunity that we are engaging to take the gospel onto the campus of Tulane. I'm going to share more with you next week just how God has opened up amazing doors for us to do that. And as we have prayed as a team of men and sought the Lord, not infallible, and we're quite capable of missing something here, and these guys were too, and I'm, I'm sure that along the way they missed stuff too. But we have felt led to set apart for this work uh, Jason and, and Jack Blanding, who I'll tell you a little bit more about next week, for the work that God is raising up and we're hoping to see accomplished at Tulane. And, and this, this is where the earthquake mentality for me, just it sobers me and it excites me. These guys didn't know this. Five men gathered, praying together, listening, sensing God. Acts chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. A man named Timothy, a young man named Timothy was going to be the recipient of this decision. You guys have heard of Timothy, right? This little decision that was made by these folks to receive the impression of the Spirit, to be moved and to be obedient to God was going to find its way into all kinds of lives. That's very exciting, isn't it? Because I think God is still moving and shaking. I think God's still moving. And when God moves, men move. And I I want to do this for us as we close today. I want to kind of put us in a position for you to think for a moment. Just in in the little bit that we find out about these men here. Do you want to? Do you want to participate in a God quake? I mean, I just just think for seconds. Survey your own heart here. Do you you want to be a part of the Bleacher Report, or do you want to participate in a God quake? God is still moving. God is still moving. God was moving globally here. Now, maybe maybe we're not going to have this kind of an impact, but God is God is moving in your home. Don't sit in the bleachers and just say, well, just when God moves, God will move. Sense God. Draw near to God. God's moving in your marriage. God's moving in Lakeview Christian Center. God's moving in the city of New Orleans. 
You guys are about to go back to your high schools and your schools. God's moving in your schools. Do you have a sense of getting around God and beginning to feel the pressure of the Spirit? God beginning to push on you. To move you to do some things, some ideas, some things that take faith, some things that scare you to pull the trigger on. But that's the pressure of the Spirit. Are you, are you sensing that? Are you near to the Spirit in such a way that you are sensing that? And are, are you moving as God is moving you? Some pressure can sit and can sit and can sit. It's when the movement takes place that things begin to shake. And the earth begins to move. So let's just invite the spirit as we close today to, to help us see what, are we in the place where the Antioch church was receiving by the spirit moved when God moves so that we can see God affect the world around us. Let's, let's stand up together. Lord, help, help us in this moment with the joyful reality and the sobering reality that some 1960 years ago, five normal men gathered together Walking with the Spirit, sensing the Spirit, led by the Spirit, impressed by the Spirit to make a decision. And here we are today. That is, that's mind-blowing, God. What if nothing else, but we, they didn't write a script or they didn't, they didn't, they perhaps didn't even know what this would look like. I can't imagine they ever lived to think the thought that some people in some little town on the mouth of a river in a faraway continent are going to be receiving the benefit of our time of prayer and our responding to God. Or they, they couldn't have known that. But here we are. So, Lord, how amazing and sobering for us. Lord, I want to live like these men. I want to live close to the Spirit. I want to be sensitive and open. I want to know your voice. I want to receive the weight and the pressure and the burden. I want to be tapped by you. Lord, I want to know what it is, whether it's a role like Abraham or Moses or David or Paul and Barnabas. Lord, I just want to sense you pressing upon my life to take courageous steps, faith-filled steps, steps of change, steps that feel risky. Lord, right now, would you, would you invade the peace of our lives with the thought that when God moves, things shake, buildings collapse, relational structures get redefined, rivers are moved from one place to another, friendships are walked away from and new ones are formed. You tap some of us, God, I believe there's some here this morning that you would be tapping their life to say, you, you, I'm, I'm singling you out in the future. I'm going to, I'm going to have you to play a role as a pastor. You're going to wear a title and you're going to serve the church. Lord, whatever the future is for us. Lord, would you make us aware of this economy? God is moving. Men are moving. God, would you give us movement in our heart? Would you give us faith to receive impressions from you so that we move with you? Lord, would you turn loose the move of your spirit in our midst? God, as we, as we begin to embrace covenant groups in days ahead, Lord, would you, would you move and accomplish relationships and care accountability and strengthening and encouragement and building and protection for the people that need to be protected. Lord, somebody in here needs to be like a Mordecai. Say, I sense God wants to protect his people and stand in front of you, God, and call out and cry out 
and press upon the esters around them and move them so that people that have been falling through cracks and falling back into the world and being taken over by sin would find this church to be a protective, engaging place that makes their steps secure and their faith strong. Oh God, you are You are moving, speak into our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd rescue every person here in this from being a part of the bleacher report. Being able to tell about something that they saw from a distance that they don't know what it is to be moved, but they're sure glad somebody else was moved. God, would you move us, every one of us, For Lord, somewhere in the future of our lives are guys like Timothy. And who knows? Maybe they're on Tulane's campus. Maybe they're in the next Alpha. Maybe they're sitting in the cubicle next to me at work. Maybe they're my sister or brother in my own household. You move me. And I move, God, you break into their world. And who knows how far away of a witness that would create. We join these men, Lord, these five men saying, Lord, would you do for us and through us what you did through them for the glory of your name in Jesus name. Amen. And God bless you guys.